People matter, freedom matters, peace matters. And to liberty, and to freedom. Free its people. March with me under the banner of freedom. Belief in freedom. Defending the frontiers of freedom. To ensure freedom. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Hello and welcome to Talking in the Free World. Um, my name is Mariam Mimar Siddiqui. Uh, Talking in the Free World is a production of Canada's McDonald Laurier Institute. My guest today is Hillel Neuer. Hillel, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you so much for making the time. Um, uh, before I uh, introduce you, I want to um, thank you so very much, uh, particularly for everything you've been doing most recently um, on Iran. I know that a, an entire nation of millions and millions of people um, are watching your efforts and extremely grateful to you. Uh, so with that, let me just say a few words about, uh, about you and then we'll get started. Um, Hillel Neuer is an international lawyer, diplomat, writer, and activist. He is the executive director of UN Watch, a human rights NGO in Geneva, Switzerland. In 2018, McGill University announced the selection of Mr. Neuer to receive a Doctor of Laws, honors causa, in recognition of his work to advance human rights and for being a voice for those without one. On September 14, 2016, the city of Chicago and Mayor Rahm Emanuel adopted a resolution declaring Hillel Neuer Day, citing his role as one of the world's most foremost human rights advocates and his contributions to promote peace, justice, and human rights around the world. The Tribune de Genève has described Neuer as a human rights activist who is feared and dreaded by the world's dictatorships. The Journal de Montréal wrote that Neuer makes the UN tremble. Israel's Ma'ariv newspaper named him to its list of the top 100 most influential Jewish people in the world. Hillel Neuer is an acclaimed speaker who has testified often before the UN and the US Senate and House of Representatives. Mr. Neuer taught international human rights at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and served as vice president of the NGO Special Committee on Human Rights in Geneva. He has been quoted as an expert on the UN and human rights by the New York Times, Die Welt and Le Monde, and has appeared in debates on CNN, BBC, and Al Jazeera. U.S. Congressman Howard Berman, speaking as ranking member in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, described Mr. Neuer as one of the strongest and most informed critics of the UN Human Rights Council. Since 2009, Neuer has headed a coalition of 25 human rights groups as chair of the annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy, a renowned international gathering that provides a global platform to courageous pro-democracy dissidents from around the world who put their lives on the line to demand fundamental freedoms in oppressive regimes. He is an attorney, as I mentioned, with several landmark cases that he has uh, led on and has authored legal pieces. Um, Hillel Neuer's banned UN speech from 2007 became the most viewed and written about NGO speech in the history of the United Nations. News reports described it as a stunning rebuke of the UN Human Rights Council and a diplomatic moment to remember. In 2017, Neuer's Where Are Your Jews speech before the UNHRC replicated in multiple languages across social media surpassed 5 million views. 
So um, it's an honor for me to speak with you, Hillel. Um, I want to start by asking you how you got started. Um, particularly, how did you get started in thinking and understanding the UN to be, uh, I think, so different than what maybe most people, how most people view the UN, the UN and particularly its human rights mechanisms? Well, I, I think I knew from a young age that there were some problems at the UN. Uh, and I say that because I seem to have found an article uh, from when I was in 10th grade, or as we call it in Montreal, grade 10, um, where I wrote something in the school newspaper uh, <clears throat> criticizing the United Nations. I think in particular, their singling out of Israel, which has been an obsession at the UN since at least 1975, if not earlier, when the Soviet Union together with um, dictatorships, including from the Arab world, uh, began to hijack the UN body. Yasser Arafat, uh, who was that of a terrorist group, was invited to the podium in 1974. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, anyone who was paying attention since at least the early 70s understood that there were some terrible things happened. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was the legendary US ambassador in 1975, uh, had spoken about racist murderers coming to the UN podium, he was referring to Idi Amin, who was then a dictator of Uganda, who would invite you for dinner. The problem was you, you didn't realize that you were the dinner. So, you know, th th these were the kinds of dictators who were, who were, you know, running things at the UN. Gaddafi, of course, uh, was uh, a major player at the UN. When I arrived in Geneva in 2004, Gaddafi's representative had just been the chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights, which was actually probably the death knell of that body. A year later, Kofi Annan acknowledged that it had become selective, politicized. So, you know, by 2005, you had even the Secretary General of the UN acknowledging that things had kind of gone, uh, become upside down and, and Orwellian. And certainly when I arrived at the UN in Geneva, that was very clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and you, uh, well, you, well, you're tireless um, every day you are advocating on behalf of those who don't have a voice, who are living under the most um, repressive regimes. And uh, you have to battle uh, those regimes at the UN, but you also have to battle uh, the UN's own um, uh, setup. Um, can you describe uh, to someone who might not know, what are the big challenges that you face on a daily basis? Well, look, when I, uh, when I walk into the UN, and that's not every day because here in Geneva, the UN Human Rights Council meets in regular session three months a year, September, March, and June. And then there are occasional um, special meetings and other hearings. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to have something good, which is very rare, but we're going to have something good on Thursday, which is a, the first time ever a special session on Iran. But when I walk into the UN Human Rights Council, uh, you know, physically, the enmity that confronts me is multiple and uh, and significant. So, you know, first there's, um, you know, Arab dictatorships don't like me because I speak out against their obsession with Israel. So the Syrians, the Libyans, uh, and others. Uh, then uh, dictatorships uh, in general. Uh, hate me because we bring their dissidents to speak and we call them out. So that's Venezuela, that's Zimbabwe, uh, it's authoritarian regimes like Pakistan, um, it's the Cubans, it's Belarus, it's Russia, it's China, 
it's the Islamic Republic of Iran, they despise me. And that's sort of, you know, that's a badge of honor because you would want the world's worst regimes to despise you. So you have all of that, but then it's it's much more complicated, as you know, because you know, you're fighting the Islamic Republic of Iran, and as you know, that's just one of the people you're fighting. But then there are these weird, bizarre, surreal, uh, counterintuitive apologists in the West, people who are nominally yeah. Democrats and nominally women's rights supporters and nominally gay rights supporters, and they're acting as apologists for a regime that is uh, the enemy of women's rights and of gay rights and so forth. And that's when it gets complicated, and you're fighting those. So when I'm at the UN, I, I encounter, first of all, well, there's there's democracies, and some of them don't like me because, um, for all kinds of reasons, but th many of them are there to go along and get along, mm -hmm. and they don't want to upset the apple cart, and, right. and, and it's a very cynical place where a lot of dirty deals are done, and I'll come to that in a moment if you ask me how, how countries get elected to the Women's Rights Commission. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a, a cynical story about that. So you walk in some of the democracies, some of them like me very much, others are not sure, but you know, I'm a troublemaker and, yeah. and they're there to, to be glad handers. They want to be nice to the Cubans and, and they'd rather get along with them. And they, they'd rather, you know, Geneva is very beautiful and you could be going skiing every weekend, which many people do. So you pull up in your BMW limousine, you go skiing and everything's quiet and calm. You're having a very nice day. So if, if a resolution is adopted by consensus and it's called a UN resolution on the right to peace, sounds great. Turns out the Syrians introduced it and it's actually propaganda. But if, if you don't make any trouble and everything is consensus and you shake hands with the Cubans and the Venezuelans and the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, you have a very nice day, no one hears about any trouble and things are easy for you. You go along to get along. Uh, but we're constantly exposing all these horrific things that number of these resolutions are 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 actually propaganda by the world's worst dictatorship. So the democracies, you know, some of them like me, some of them don't. But then you have the uh, UN secretariat. Okay, um, they are uh, functionaries, the bureaucrats. Uh, many of them come from Western countries. They come from France and Italy and and maybe the United States and, and, and other countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, th they should like us because we're holding uh, the abusers to account to protect the United Nations Charter, which is a great document that expresses the noble principles of liberal internationalism at its best from 1945 with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the brilliant people who are surrounding him. And the UN Charter is a great document. It speaks about uh, fundamental freedoms and human rights and international peace and security and the equal treatment of all nations, large and small. And we're protecting that against the Libyans, Gaddafi and, and uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and these disgusting people who are perverting it. They've actually created a group. Um, uh, they created a group, Mariam, called um, uh, UN, I forget the exact name, but it's like Defenders of the, of the Charter. And it's like the, it's like the it's like the world's worst rogue regime created a group of like twenty countries who defend the UN Charter, yeah. and and they're not they're doing the opposite. So you would think the UN bureaucrats would be grateful for the work that we're doing, but they're not because they want to go to work every day, imagining to themselves that they're walking to this beautiful Human Rights Council chamber. <clears throat> but I'm exposing that one of their experts is a guy named Jean Ziegler, a Swiss uh, socialist politician who was the co-founder of the Muammar Gaddafi Human Rights Prize. I'm gonna say that again. 
for people who may, maybe they didn't hear. Um, maybe the Libyans are interfering. The Muammar Gaddafi Human Rights Prize. Mariam, I could make that up, make that up if I wanted to. Jean Ziegler in 1989 announced to Time magazine and went, went around to all the press corps in Geneva to proudly announce that he created, helped create the Muammar Gaddafi Human Rights Prize, uh, a propaganda vehicle after the Lockerbie bombing where Libya was accused of killing over 200 innocent people over Lockerbie, Scotland and Pan Am Flight 103. They created the Gaddafi Human Rights Prize, $10 million in the bank. Who won the prize since 1989? Louis Farrakhan, anti-Semite of the Nation of Islam. Fidel Castro, dictator of Cuba. Hugo Chavez, strongman of Venezuela. In 2002, the Gaddafi Prize in Tripoli, Libya, given out every year, went to convicted French Holocaust denier, Roger Garaudy. In the same year, in the same year Marianne, that it went to Jean Ziegler himself, this Swiss apologist who created the prize, he won the Gaddafi Prize in 2002. So this is Jean Ziegler. He's a leading UN human rights expert for 20 years here at the Human Rights Council. Wow. So, um, so I'm exposed, I exposed this, and in a report, it was, Geneva didn't want to touch it because he's a hero in Geneva, because he attacks America and the West and capitalism and Israel. Um, but in Zurich, they published it on front page, Neue Zürcher Zeitung, very solemn newspaper. And the people who walk into the room at the UN, the bureaucrats, would like to imagine that they're walking into the United Nations Human Rights Council, yeah. a place that they imagine with men with long white beards and white robes stroll along Mount Olympus, making their decisions based on facts, logic, and morality, when we're reporting the truth that nothing could be further from the truth. When sitting yeah. around the table are not Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates, but Gaddafi, Castro, and the House of Saud. So the UN bureaucrats actually, it turns out, hate me. And we have a complaint that we've launched yeah. against the head bureaucrat, Eric Tistune, who's been the secretary of the Human Rights Council for the past 20 years. You know, the founder of the Human Rights Council was the Human Rights Commission, 1946, was Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. And in 2003, it was Colonel Gaddafi's representative. The founding secretary in 1946 was John Humphrey, a great Canadian who helped draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I met him in his last years of his life when he was teaching at McGill and mm -hmm. I was there and he was a great man. He was the founding secretary. The final secretary, he's still there, is Eric Tistunet, who's a friend of Jean Ziegler. And he has a campaign against me to remove my name from speakers list, a secret campaign to manipulate speakers list to remove my name, to smear me on the internet. He tells his staff, we have leaked emails. He tells his staff to go on the internet and say bad things about me. He imagines that I could be arrested through an Interpol arrest warrant and kept away from the UN. And he's, he is the leading staff member running things at the Human Rights Council. And we have a complaint to the Secretary General that he should be suspended and investigated. So the Secretariat hates me. And then the NGOs, and with this I conclude, when I walk into the room, many human rights groups love us. And we organize the annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights, where we've hosted Masia Alinejad and Mariam Claren and so many amazing dissidents from around the world. And we do it with 25 human rights groups. But some of the larger, more established groups are part of the system, and they have a Jeremy Corbyn type of worldview, and I represent everything that they hate. Mm -hmm. And so, and but we're active on human rights. So here's a active human rights person who uh, does not think the West is the root of all evil. We don't shy away from calling out abuses by Western countries, but mm -hmm. we don't have this sort of dogmatic Jeremy Corbynite neo-Marxist worldview that despises the West and thinks that's the root of all evil. And yeah. so they hate. So when I walk in the room, Marianne, there's a lot of hate. 
360 degrees. Right. Wow. What an honor to have that hate coming at you. Um, if you were addressing a group of, you mentioned grade 10. So let's say you're addressing a group of students in um, your own high school and you want to tell them about the UN. Do you end up, would you end up saying that the UN right now is worth having or not? It's, you know, I, I go with pragmatic, which it's not going away. So, you know, I think it would be interesting to take a ledger and and itemize and count up and add up all the positive things that the UN has done. And it has done positive things. And, and you know, um, you and I are very active on Iran right now. There's going to be a special session on Iran. That's a good thing. But then you'd have to put the negative ledger. And the negative ledger is that the Islamic Republic of Iran was elected to the UN Women's Rights Commission a year and a half ago. And no one wanted to talk about it. Nobody, no country, no NGO. We were the only ones to expose it and launch the campaign to remove them, which, uh, please God, will happen next month in mid-December, which is quite amazing. But extraordinary things can happen. But the Americans have requested a meeting of the 54-nation ECOSOC, which obscenely elected the Islamic Republic, and which hopefully in the week of December 12th will remove them. So it would be interesting to take a list of all the good things the UN has done. And it has done many good things. And all the list of the terrible things that it has done, how it's hijacked human rights. And you know, that would be interesting. But at the end of the day, the UN is not going away. You know, George W. Bush did not pull out of the UN. Even Donald Trump, with John Bolton as his national security advisor, did not pull out of the UN. It is not going away. So we have to deal with it. Um, and that's why we, as the leading critic of the Human Rights Council, actually have never called for the United States to pull out. We actually want them to fight. And um, Ambassador Michelle Taylor is there, and she's trying her best to take advantage of the good things you can do and to fight against the bad things. We encourage the United States and other democracies to call out the bad things. Unfortunately, many countries, they don't like to do that. So they're very hesitant to call out the bad things of the UN. And that's where we have a problem. If you're going to be here, you're going to be a member, you don't have to legitimize all the terrible things. You can call them out. Since you've been doing this, uh, would you say that things are becoming more challenging for you in the sense that um, countries like Russia, China, Iran in particular are, are much more uh, cohesive and, and behind each other, more of a block? Um, or would you say that you see a lot of collaboration and creativity among the activists of the world and that there's, there's a lot of progress from them? Certainly the dictators are working um, to unite more. There is unity among thieves, that is for sure, and they're more powerful. I mean, I've been here 18 years and I've seen the, um, the dramatic change of position where the United States was, was here and China was here. And just to give an example, and now China is here, the U.S. is, is here. I mean, uh, you know, the U.S. was a, still a superpower when I came and now it just feels they don't seem to act like it uh, too often. And rise in China is noted, other regimes, Russia to a certain degree uh, and others. So that, that's, that's, that's something that's quite um, noticeable. And um, I, I don't think you know, too often the democratic um, allies are not working as forcefully. Certainly they work together and they did manage to do a number of things and to adopt resolutions uh, on Russia with Ukraine, for example. 
but um, I, I, I don't think they're as forceful enough as, as they could be. That's mm -hmm. what we encourage them. I was glad to see that for the first time ever, uh, the Human Rights Council, there was an attempt to pass a resolution on China just to hold a meeting about the Uyghurs. It didn't pass, unfortunately, but there was an attempt. So we seek to encourage them, uh, but they, they, need, they need a lot of encouragement. Our democracies need a lot of encouragement to say the right thing. You have sort of an aerial view on different democracy movements around the world. Um, and you're particularly focused on those that have the most challenging struggle, the most, uh, they're countering the most repressive regimes. Um, what advice do you have those movements and, and activists, human rights activists, democracy advocates, um, based on what you're seeing from a global perspective? What are the things that they're doing today that are the most effective? That's a good question. And, you know, every country is, is specific. Um, mm -hmm. Some dissidents have, you know, have brilliant people, you know, I, I with, with the uh, Iranian human rights movement, I'm amazed by Masih Alinejad, who brings together so many uh, incredible skills, uh, intelligence, charisma, uh, you know, uh, good debating skills, so many things, and, and other movements don't don't have that as much. Are not as unified enough, um, and um, and and are weaker. Um, uh, you know, it, it it it's hard to give a a um, a one size fits all. Um, but um, yeah, I, I I don't have a single a single bit of advice for for each country. Obviously, they, they need to know how to use social media. That's essential. Mm -hmm. They need to, as much as they can, to be unified. That's important. They need to be organized. Um, they need to be clear. And, then they, and they need to and try to, as much as possible, to access support from Western leaders. And that will depend on where, where the Western democracies are. We know that, let's say, if you talk about Cuba or Iran, under Obama and initially Biden, they were weak on that. Uh, now they're a little better on some of those things. So, uh, but but that that's essential. Ultimately, you do want to get support of the democratic world, and that it's not always obvious how that happens. Do you find that there is a direct um, a line of causation between a lot of um, public awareness and understanding of particularly bad human rights abuses? and uh, Western support for the democracy movements in those countries, or no? Is it possible that, that there's all kinds of um, information being produced about these uh, abuses? I'm thinking of the uh, Uyghurs in, in, in China, for example, and it doesn't result in, in things. And then there are other countries where the, the abuses might be not as bad but there's some kind of uh, global solidarity that emerges, or no? Do you think that there is usually a reliable a link between the level of repression and how much the world cares? There is some kind of uh, a link, uh, but there's so many other factors. You know, it, it is natural that um, that countries will care about uh, victims who are who they can identify with. That's human nature. You identify with your brother and your sister if they're hurt, your family, then your village, your tribe, you know, maybe your country. Uh, someone growing up in Canada, I, I was socialized that, you know, if 
if something happened in, uh, I grew up in Montreal, but if something happened in faraway Saskatoon, it, it was relevant to me. It was something happening in Canada, and that's 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 normal. And if something's happening, you know, another part of the world, um, people may not be as mobilized. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, the fact that in Europe people are very mobilized by what's happening in Ukraine, there are people in in Africa or other countries saying it's not fair and it's racist and so forth. Maybe, but there there is something natural that that in a country that's relatively close, because there is a closeness, and that Europeans might care about fellow Europeans. It may not be right, it may not be just, but that is human nature. So I think that is a factor. You know, I, I think that will always be a factor. It could be in some faraway place that half a million people were killed. <clears throat> if, I mean, one thing is, do you see the pictures? You know, so if you're seeing the pictures every night about something, that will be powerful. Yeah. You know, when back in the 80s, I guess it was, when we were seeing pictures about famine in Ethiopia and all that, that became a huge issue. And if we didn't see the pictures, it would probably be less. And mm -hmm. so the world got mobilized. So, but you know, when do the media decide to show you the pictures? Well, they have to have access, true, but the media has to care. It's a bit of a chicken and egg. The media will care about things they think the audience is interested in. Exactly. The, the, the government can play a role too. The media will sometimes follow the signal of the government. The government can, can you know, you know, we saw with the Iraq wars and stuff like that, the government will invite the media onto the battleship and can embed them. So there's a number of different factors. Certainly, if it's on your news every night, that will mobilize you. If you're seeing pictures, if we saw pictures of the Uyghurs every night, uh, I think that would mobilize us more. So when does CNN or Fox News or whoever it is, when do they decide to show certain pictures? There can be, you know, various political narratives that will fit in. Is this country an ally of, of your country or not? So many different factors will go into what the media will decide to show and then what we will, will care about. You know, there's a lot of different factors. Yeah. Um, as far as the, the actions, the civic actions of ordinary citizens around the world, what have you found is particularly effective? What would you, what would you recommend to people who really care about an issue? You, you mean people, let's say, in democracies who, who care about, yes. uh, let's say, um, uh, human rights abuses in a dictatorship? Yes. Yeah. Um, a, a big part is getting, getting our governments to do something. So, you, you know, the, we in the West, I'm in Switzerland, I, I can't really uh, um, pressure Xi Jinping in China to do something. He doesn't really care what I think, but mm -hmm. he, but if if when when countries take the floor, when 20, 30, 40 countries sign a joint statement about the Uyghurs or about Hong Kong, they care. They do care. They don't like it. And they push back very hard, very heavy, very quickly. You know, here in Geneva, the Human Rights Council, someone will hold, might have been the US or some others, held a seminar, a panel event, it's called a side event. So it's on the sidelines of the Human Rights Council. It's not in the Human Rights Council chamber, it's downstairs. They held a one and a half hour uh, panel event mm -hmm. about the Uyghurs. And China, the Chinese Communist Party regime, sent a letter to every ambassador in Geneva saying, don't you dare go. And if you do go, we'll have to reconsider our relations. Very harsh threats just to attend an informal meeting. So, asking what can our what can our you know citizens do? Get our governments to speak out. 
get our governments, whether it's Iran or China or Cuba or Venezuela or Zimbabwe, if our governments speak out in a powerful way at the United Nations or elsewhere, that makes a difference. So that, that's the most effective thing you can do. And how do you get your governments to speak out? You send a letter to your congressperson, you uh, post on social media, you make noise in any way you can. Yeah. Let me ask you about Israel. I mean, one of your, your big motivations is to uh, prevent the, the injustice that the, the uh, UN creates around Israel. I mean, you, you consistently uh, communicate, for example, about the fact that on the most uh, totalitarian, most repressive regimes in the world, there will be no human, human, human rights council resolutions. And then on Israel, there's a slew. Um, how has that changed over the years? And um, how, um, how bad is it today? Well, it's, uh, it's been extreme for nearly five decades. Uh, as I mentioned before, 1975 was the culmination. The Arafat, yes, Arafat was the head of the PLO and who had been involved in the attacks on the Munich Olympics and, and, and many uh, uh, high uh, publicity terrorist attacks that he was involved in. He was invited to the United Nations. And a year later, um, Soviet Union with Arab states and other dictatorships adopted a resolution declaring that Zionism is a form of racism. Now, Zionism was uh, is the idea that the Jewish people can be free in their own homeland, uh, which is the principle of self-determination and national self-liberation, which basically every country in the UN that had joined in the 1960s and 70s uh, on decolonialism had joined under that banner. And suddenly only one national claim, that of the Jewish people, was singled out and labeled as racist wasn't a particular policy or a particular person or government, but the very idea of a Jewish state was, singled, yes. was labeled as racist. And those supporting it were, you know, many of the 56 Islamic states, many Christian countries that have Christianity embedded in their constitution, you know, um, well, they, they didn't, many of those didn't support it, but the Islamic state certainly did. But you, you, you had this, this obsession, I would call a pathological obsession, with demonizing and delegitimizing one state and one nation, the Jewish people. And, um, and it, it is the modern form of anti-Semitism today. Yes. Of course, anyone can criticize Israel. That's entirely legitimate and it happens in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament every day and in Israel's newspapers like Haaretz, which is probably one of the harshest critics of Israel in the world. But the, the attempt to portray Israel as demonic as a Nazi-like state and to use all the terms that were used against the Nazis, uh, ethnic cleansing, racism, occupation, genocide, these are all being, apartheid are all being pinned on Israel. And, and indeed under the International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition, uh, when you uh, liken uh, Israel to a Nazi state, it's a form of anti-Semitism. So that is what uh, we are combating. And in terms of numbers, Indeed, as you said, the Human Rights Council has never adopted a resolution on Saudi Arabia, on Pakistan, on Cuba, uh, but they you know, adopted 99 resolutions condemning Israel, which has no mention of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and so forth. Can you say so that one more time? Can you say that stat one more time about 99? Sure. The United Nations Human Rights Council has adopted zero resolutions on Cuba, on Saudi Arabia, on Cuba, on most other dictatorships of the world. It's adopted 99 resolutions on Israel, all of them one-sided, all of them not mentioning a word about terrorism by Islamic Jihad, Fatah, or Hamas. 
So that is what we're combating. We think it's absolutely fine to hold every country to account, including Israel. But this pathological obsession, demonization, delegitimization is contrary to the UN Charter, which guarantees equal treatment to all nations, large and small. And if you ask me how has it changed, in some ways it hasn't changed. It's been about the same since 1975. What has changed, Mariam, is the impact outside the UN. In 1975, leading institutions of world opinion thought something awful and terrible had happened uh, when the UN declared Zionism as a form of racism. But uh, outside the UN, it was largely condemned. Today, we have significant erosion where leading human rights groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch are endorsing this narrative. One of their major campaigns in the past year or so has been by Amnesty International, quote, end Israel's apartheid. For, for months, this was their number one banner on their homepage, on Twitter, on Facebook, on other social media. It wasn't massacres yeah. in Iran. Where, it was the only liberal democracy in Israel. Where do, where, what are the roots of that? Why, why is that happening? Why are the human rights, why is the human rights infrastructure, NGO and UN becoming so much more anti anti-Israeli. And I would add it at, as, as Israel becomes more and more of a democratic country where LGBT rights, women's rights, uh, democratic freedoms are respected more and more over the years. Look, it's absolutely not rational. And many things happen in the world that are not rational. Um, and there's a lot of mm, history and psychology. And uh, look, in the United States today, we had in Charlottesville, Virginia, I guess it was several years ago, yeah. there were um, uh, white supremacists marching and I think they were saying Jews will not replace us or something like that. Yeah. So you had white supremacist anti-Semitism and, and some of them attacked synagogues in Pittsburgh and San Diego. And a couple of days ago, you had a lot of blacks in New York City marching, saying we're the real Jews and, and spouting uh, a, a form of anti-Semitic ideology that's part of a movement called the Black Hebrews, where the, they say that we're the real Jews and the so-called Jews are, are stealing who we are and they're involved in slavery. So you, you have irrational hatred of Jews from whites and blacks, and there's irrational hatred of Jews on the extreme right, on the extreme left. What we're seeing uh, in the amnesty expression is the modern form of anti-Semitism on the extreme left, Jeremy Corbyn was a notorious example, but mm -hmm. sociologically, they're the same people. You know that the head of Amnesty for 20 years in London was Kate Allen. Her partner was Red Ken, Ken Livingstone, the mayor of uh, London, who a few years ago famously said that Hitler was a Zionist. So just sociological, these are people moving in the same circle. Red Ken saying Hitler is a Zionist, his common law wife for 20 years is Kate Allen, the head of Amnesty UK. So it doesn't shock me that some of these people over the years have come to this ideology. It is a for modern form of anti-Semitism and it's become axiomatic. So it's axiomatic on the extreme left, the Jeremy Corbynite world that you hate America, you hate the West, you hate capitalism, you hate Israel. Those are the evils of the world. It's, it's a not package. up for discussion. It's a, it's, package. All, it's, a it's a package and it's axiomatic. It's not up for discussion. If you don't go on to those things, you can't be a part of the Jeremy Corbyn world. You can't be a leader in Amnesty. And again, these, it's complicated because these groups do a lot of good. Uh, Amnesty is active in 100 countries around the world, and they'll sometimes do a lot of good. And that is what's completely 
um, diabolical, you might say, about mm. the new anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is like a virus, it mutates. In Christian Europe, it said, we hate Jews and we kill Jews in the name of religion. Jews killed Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the name of religion, you must hate and kill Jews. In, in the modern form, it was in the name of science. Jews are an inferior race. So if you believe in science, uh, you will want to hate Jews. It always doesn't say we come in the name of hatred. We come in the name of the highest authority. And in modern times, the highest moral authority is human rights and anti-racism. And so for our guard to be down, for our immunity to be down, anti-Semitism today says, I come to you in the name of anti-racism. Uh, Amnesty says, I want you to hate the Jewish state and, and support the eliminating the Jewish state in the name of anti-racism. And so people say, oh, well, okay, I'm an anti-racist and I guess I should. So it's pernicious. Um, yes. What about the universities? It seems like that's also the case where, you know, you have the most elite universities seem to be the locus for the highest levels of this kind of anti anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. Um, do you think anything effective is being done to counter it right now? I don't know. I have to tell you that just, you know, speaking more broadly, not just about the uh, demonization of Israel, which is across North American campuses, where of all the countries in the world, the only one they want to boycott and adopt resolutions for boycott, divestment and sanctions is the only liberal democracy in the Middle East. Israel is not perfect, should be criticized, should be held to account, but it is the only liberal democracy in the Middle East. I worked for a year on the Israeli Supreme Court. You can, any citizen can bring a petition against your government to the Supreme Court. They are one of the most activist judiciaries in the world. Um, and you cannot go in Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and go to the Supreme Court and have them knock down a decision of the, of the government, put a prime minister or, or a former prime minister or president in prison. They can't do that. But the only country, in the, the only nation in the Middle East that's doing that is Israel. That's the only country, as you said, in North American campuses that they're obsessed with. But to be more broad, more broadly, I went back to my alma mater, McGill University, a few years ago, about four years ago, and I didn't. And I was, I guess, twenty years not having been there, and I didn't understand the discourse that was going on. They were inviting, they were giving ceremony, and Native people were invited to come up with a special pin, and there was a whole discussion about land acknowledgments. And there was all this virtue signaling in, in, in America, you have the black issue. And so there's an obsession with race. Canada doesn't have that, uh, that history, but it does have the history of, of the native people, which mm -hmm. is a legitimate issue. But, mm -hmm. but there's this enormous virtue signaling that's going on. And, and part of it is an, is an anti-Western. We're going to hate Canada and say that Canada is responsible for terrible evils because of what Canada did to the indigenous people. Just like in America, you're gonna hate America because of 1619. All of America is really founded on evil. So th those are similar narratives. Right. And the anti-Israel thing sort of fits into it. It's, it's hating Israel. It's hating the West. And there's a book that I didn't read, but I've heard him speak about it, which is um, Douglas Murray has mm -hmm. talked about this. this there is an yes. anti-Western narrative at the root of a lot of what's happening and the George Floyd thing tapped into it. Again, it taps into things that are real. There is racism. There were terrible things done to Native people, but today Canada and America are not the problem in the world. They, if they, the systems that we have are were very complicated to develop to have liberal democracies, and we should not be destroying them. Uh, and the sort of the extreme woke movement is an anti-Western movement, 
and the Israel thing sort of fits into it. It appeals to certain ancient passions. Interesting. The There's a lot of self-hatred going on that drives things. It seems to me that uh, a lot of it is some kind of feeling good about yourself by hating yourself um, and feeling like, you know, you get credit as a human rights oriented person if you put down yourself and Western civilization. And that's just so convenient for the world's most repressive regimes because uh, they can take advantage of it so easily. Um, quite literally, it is the ideology of the Islamic Republic, for example, to, to hate America. Um, and and anti-Americanism, anti-Israeli, anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism is at the core of, of fascists and communists and repressive regimes in history and today. Correct. Let me ask you about the Women's Rights uh, Commission on the Status of Women uh, at the UN. Just, just overall, what is it? What does it do? What is it meant to do? And then your story. I'm interested to hear it. There is uh, at the United Nations a Commission on the Status of Women. It was, probably dates back to the 1940s. Um, and it meets once a year. It's a uh, body of about 45 or so. I could be wrong. It's about 45 member states. They get elected by a larger body, slightly larger body called the Economic and Social Council, which is uh, one of the main organs of the UN. That's 54 nations. They elect countries to the Commission on the Status of Women. The Commission on the Status of Women meets once a year. They meet in March and they largely um, adopt, they have discussions, usually thematic discussions, and they usually adopt thematic resolutions by consensus. If you ask me what's, what, what has it accomplished in recent years to help women, I don't really know, but they meet and they talk about women's issues. And because they try to seek consensus, you're gonna get the lowest common denominator because you're gonna get Iran and Saudi Arabia and Qatar I mean, even if they're not members, and some of them are, but even if they're not members, they're, they're observers and you kind of want everyone to be happy. So they usually get, I would say, rather milk toast, meaningless resolutions, in my opinion. But it is the UN's highest women's rights body. Um, and I'm sure over the years they've adopted some good things. I, I don't know um, what they are. But, you know, we've done things on the sidelines as an NGO. We've brought various women's rights activists to speak there. Yeah. Um, so they meet once a year. And in April 2021, uh, the Economic and Social Council held one of their elections, and Iran was a candidate. Uh, there was no competition. The Asian group, I'll make up the numbers, maybe there were three or four or five uh, seats available for the Asian group, and they had an identical amount of candidates. So there was no competition. And so if you were a voting member, uh, the choice that you had, and normally, by the way, it's done without a vote, and it's sort of done by acclamation. To, to its credit, the United States called a vote. The vote was by secret ballot, so we don't know how countries voted, but you had a choice. You could, as far as I know, you had sort of a, a, a piece of paper uh, where in the Asian group, you could either write Iran or you could leave it blank. 43 out of 54 wrote Iran. So 43 out of 54 voted for Iran. 11 did not, they basically left it blank. The problem with that, Mariam, is that mm -hmm. there were 15 Western or EU countries on the commission, on the council at the time, but only 11 voted, only, we, only, only a maximum of 11 voted no. It means at least four yes. Western or EU countries voted yes, it could have been more. 
at least four EU or Western countries voting Iran onto the Women's Rights Commission, uh, which is called the Commission on the Status of Women, which is shameful. We exposed it. No one wanted to talk about it. We exposed it. There was some outrage, um, but it largely went away. The United States at the time did not want to comment on it. Matt Lee from the Associated Press in the daily press briefing with Ned Price, the spokesman of the State Department, asked him, do you condemn the election of Iran? He said, oh, well, you know, it was a private election and, you know, we called the vote. He said, it's not what I'm asking you. Do you condemn the election of Iran? He said, well, you know, sometimes countries join, which shouldn't join. I'm asking you specifically, couldn't get an answer. So back in April 2021, and Voice of America did an article on this, the United States government refrained, balked, uh, dodged, did not want to openly condemn the election. Fast forward to today, it changed. Yeah. And now we, we, you know, we launched the campaign again. We drafted a resolution. It's never happened before to remove a country from the UN Commission on Status of Women, but we determined how it could happen. ECOSOC elected them. They could unelect them. We drafted a resolution saying, whereas, 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 we hereby terminate the membership of the Islamic Republic of Iran on the Commission on the Status of Women effective immediately. And that is exactly what the United States has just requested to do. They requested a meeting on the week of December 12th. And uh, we hope that will happen. That will be quite extraordinary because you can be sure that many European countries did not want to open this Pandora's box. Um, 2017, the same uh, body elected Saudi Arabia to this commission. And we exposed that and it emerged that the Belgians were on the council. We asked how did Belgium vote? How did Ireland vote? How did Norway vote? Sweden? They didn't want to talk about it, but in the Belgian parliament, controversy for a week. Finally, the Belgian prime minister shows up in the parliament and he says, je regrette, je regrette. I apologize, we voted. Yes, we admit Belgium voted for Saudi Arabia, but then, Mariam, the most amazing thing comes out in the Belgian media. Not only did Belgium elect, vote for Saudi Arabia, but the cable that went from Brussels to New York said the following. Vote for Saudi Arabia and make sure you tell the Saudis that we voted for them. So when the European countries are asked, why are these countries, they say, ah, no, Marco Volkswagen of Sweden said, we need them because they need to learn and improve. We can't have the Women's Rights Commission just being Finland and Sweden and Norway. We need, we need the Saudis so they'll learn and improve. Baloney. The Belgians voted for Saudi Arabia as a deal. Tell the Saudis we voted for them so that the Saudis would elect Belgium on the Security Council. So it's very cynical stuff. And not to mention that they're not in this particular case, perhaps, but you've pointed out in other cases where there is outright financial corruption going on. You know, there's there's a tip for that. You do this for me, I'll do it for you. That the woman who's um, I don't know, she's Belarusian or something, she's constantly right. out there. Uh, uh, advocating against sanctions, but her her motivations okay. have nothing to do with the suffering of people. Um, no, it's not. She she is the UN expert against sanctions, a position created by the Islamic Republic of Iran together with other dictatorships. <laughs> she that has visited well in. <laughs> in the in the past two years. Islamic Republic was the co-sponsor of the text on behalf of the non-aligned group. The countries that she's visited in the past two years include. Venezuela, Syria, Zimbabwe, six months ago, the Islamic Republic of Iran, while people were being killed in the streets. And she said, all of your problems are because of the Western countries and sanctions. And we exposed indeed that in a UN document, we saw that the Chinese Communist Party 
gave her mandate $200,000. What she does with that money, I have no idea. And she, uh, shortly after getting that money in the same time frame, she went on a Chinese propaganda video to say that the Uyghurs are happy people. People suffering genocide, a million people herded into camps. She's saying they're very happy people. She's headlining the event while she got 200,000 from the Chinese. Oh. Couldn't make this stuff up if you, if you wanted to. By the way, Jean Ziegler, who received the Qaddafi prize, the prize was estimated to be $100,000 or more. Um, and we don't know what happened to that money. Wow. Well, of course not. Um, I have a lot of other questions for you, Hillary. Well, I should add, I should add there's, there's, you know, it's financial corruption, but a lot of it is ideological corruption. Yes. That goes yes. a long way, too. Yeah. They get some sort of a, a good feeling about sticking together on these on these ideological points. Um, I have a lot of other questions for you, but I know that your time is extremely valuable. I want to just ask you very briefly, what's your message to the Iranian people right now? Because I know that some of them may be watching this. Sure. Look, um, we're happy that good things are happening at the UN now. It's rare, but they're happening. And, and I'm delighted. And I congratulate German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock for calling a special session on Iran at the Human Rights Council in two days. It will be held on Thursday. I understand that she'll be coming in for it. We will be there. I just got information that we we made it to the only 19 NGOs speak. And this time we're on the list. Great. Uh, miracle of miracles, we're the 19th that we're going to speak. I will be speaking. Uh, we tried to bring many famous people that were listed, but it was very hard to bring them for various reasons. So I will be taking the floor. My message in Great. a nutshell will be woman life freedom. That will be the theme. And I will be confronting the Iranian regime. I will speak after they will. So I'll be calling out their lies, exposing the crimes, asking for accountability for the killing of Masamini, hundreds of others, thousands injured, thousands arrested. The regime is uh, needs to be held to account. And in the 90 seconds that I have, I will do my very best to give voice to the suffering of the people, to their desire for basic human dignity, for women's rights, for freedom, for democracy, and to demand that the world take action because uh, the world is beginning to mobilize, but it needs to do so much more, snap back sanctions, expel the so-called diplomats, um, so much more that the world needs to do. Well, I know that um, countless Iranians are grateful to you. Uh, so appreciative of everything you do every day. And I know that people who are are uh, suffering under repression across the world feel the same way. Hillel, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you for the important work that you do. And I saw that you just the other day were confronting uh, some of the Iranian regime's most ardent apologists and your attack for it. So I know you have uh, you, you have a lot of scars to show for the incredible work you're doing. And uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks again, Hillel. Thank you for watching, everyone. This has been Talking in the Free World with Mariam Memarsadegi. The show is a production of Canada's Macdonald Laurier Institute. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, give us your rating and review, and please share with others. If you have suggestions, including on topics or guests, I'd be grateful. You can write to me on Twitter, at Mimar Sadegi. Thanks for listening.